Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. It's taken almost three years for this to come together, so I'm delighted to announce that my guest this week is John Hodgman, an author, a performer, and the host of the podcast Judge John Hodgman, which you should be listening to if you aren't already. You may have seen him on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, Bored to Death, Battlestar Galactica, and Married. Maybe you've caught his Netflix special, Ragnarok. And hopefully you've stumbled across his three collections of fake trivia, The Areas of My Expertise, More Information Than You Require, and That Is All. His latest book, Vacation Land, is something of a departure, with Hodgman abandoning his goofy fake facts to tell stories from his real life as a middle-aged weird dad and finding something transcendent and honest in the telling. It was a wonderful thing to see live a few years ago, and it's a lovely read now. You should pick it up paperback comes out today. John picked Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express, an all-star production of Agatha Christie's classic mystery set against the glorious, exotic backdrop of a world that never quite existed. With the likes of Judy Dench, Johnny Depp, Willem Dafoe, Daisy Ridley, Olivia Colman, Penelope Cruz, Michelle Pfeiffer, Derek Jacobi, Josh Gad, and Leslie Odom Jr. running around the elaborate carriages of a trans-European luxury train as Branagh's magnificently baroque Hercule Poirot does his best to solve an impossible murder, it arrived in the world last fall as a totally unnecessary film, like didn't Sidney Lumet do this 40 years ago? And turned out to be a delightful surprise. Don't worry, we won't spoil the ending. This is someone else's movie. The chief reason is geographical, obviously, and then the, 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 the vice chief reason is that, you know, when someone says talk about a thing, that's usually when I draw this perfect blank. Right. Like, I, there, there are no things. How could I talk about anything? And, uh, but that, but it just, it struck me like yesterday. Oh, I know what I can talk about. Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. What, um, I mean, that is always the first question. What made you choose it? So, well, I saw it, right. <laughs> which is unusual enough for movies. In the last, what, five, six months, right? It's a fairly recent film. Yes. And I saw it on an airplane, probably the way it was meant to be seen. <laughs> no, well, I take, Camera 65. I take it back. I take it back. I mean, it. What, what's interesting about Murder on the Orient Express, both the new version, the Kenneth Branagh version, and the old, uh, the 1974 Sydney version, mm-hmm. is that they are lavish. Yes. Like, the screen is dripping with production value. Never mind acting. Um, uh, you know, they, made, they, they got such beautiful scenery for everybody to chew in both movies. Yeah, as though they knew that you know, people might not want to watch people sitting in a train chamber. The the the, the carriage no. isn't enough. No, and none of it. None of no one wants it. No, I mean that's <laughs> it. And uh, no one wanted it in '74, and no one really wanted it in '17. But I I will I will explain my journey to understanding how 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 corrected I stand, please. But even though both of those movies are profoundly lavish productions. They are based on junk. I mean, with all respect to Agatha Christie, master of the form, she, she you know, and, and she wrote books that you used to pass the time. Yeah, it was the pulp of the age. Yeah, while you were on a train, for yes. example. So it was the air. It was the airplane movie of its time. Mm-hmm. You would read. You would read it, and obviously, you would. 
you love and there, and maybe people are going to be mad at me because I'm and I don't mean to downgrade Agatha Christie's legacy um, and literary skill in any way. Indeed, readability is a great legacy, you know, yeah. and, and and something that a lot of writers don't bother to aspire to. But it is the most, you know, it's inc- it's an incredible rare gift to be able to write something and create a world that people want to return to again and again and again. But Murder on the Orient Express is a pulp. It's a small thing. It truly is a. It's a. It's a. It's a. You know. A, it's a wisp of a book. It it's really a, yeah, is. It's exactly. A, it's all just. It's plot evidence. Plot evidence. Right. It's a. It's a. It's a CSI of its day. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's a. It's a procedural. It's a forensic. Yeah, it is. It really is. And and yet, some for some reason, there was this dual impulse in history to create a gorgeous, huge, expensive movie out of it. Now, obviously. Even in 1974, that was predicated on a nostalgia for a kind of filmmaking, for a bygone era, for a certain caliber of, of uh, movie actors that had not, you know, you hadn't seen for a while. Sure. Ingrid Bergman, you know, uh, uh, you know, won an Academy Award for a single monologue yep. for that movie. Like, and I haven't seen it in years, but I'm going to say she probably deserved it. It's pretty fun. Yeah, it is. I mean, the the, the difference between 74 and 2017 is that 74 doesn't it somehow feels as self-aware as the new version but it's not as indulgent there's still a greater Uh sense of you know we're doing we're doing literature we're doing we're having fun with it but this is a real book that we're adapting and then brenna just goes all in on isn't this ridiculous look how much fun I have Judy Dench and Michelle Pfeiffer here, and they're just going to stare daggers at one another for four minutes, and it just—it'll be fun. Trust me. That's an you, you know I, I I wouldn't have said I wouldn't have said that the 2017 Murder on the Orient Express would be irreverent, but you're mm-hmm. right. Well, it's Brenna yeah. is the ringmaster essentially because he's mm-hmm. cast himself as Poirot. Yeah, he just gets to set that ludicrous, right, self-indulgent tone. My mustache has two mustaches. I mean, it's it's, it's a magnificent. Piece so we'll of talk. We got to talk about the mustache. Oh, we could do a whole episode on the mustache. Well, I mean, so yeah, in '74 they they make this sort of nostalgia, like they they take something small and and pay it great reverence, mm-hmm. and whether it deserves that reverence or not, I think is an interesting conversation. Sure, but they they did it right, and guess what? They did it like there was no reason to do it again. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was it was when I saw that. Uh, like the trailer came up on you know Apple trailers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, come on, yeah. I who in the world? Well, that's wants right. this. What is, when I saw that the film was being made, when when they'd announced that Brenna was playing Poirot, I think that was the first piece of information that came out. I just thought, no, why, who? No one's going to go see this. It's just right. it's not a film for a modern audience. But of course now. I mean, I'm almost 50. There are people who are 60 and 70 who go to two movies a year and they tell me which ones they are because they think I'm a contemporary. Right. And they all went to see the murder. Everyone, one. everyone. They were excited. Every old person in the world. Yeah. Including Did you know me. Michelle Pfeiffer is in this movie? They were really excited well, about it's Well, and it's interesting. I mean, you know, like, and Michelle Pfeiffer was so great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we hadn't seen her in a movie for a long time. So it was a similar... Yeah, yeah. And and you know there aren't the roles uh, in contemporary movie house non independent cinema for those actors. Yeah, so somebody's much. mom, somebody's grandmother. Yeah, you know, like like Catherine Keener. Oh yeah, for example. Like I think about it 
probably once a week <laughs> that her role in um, was it Captain Phillips, Tom Hanks. Yes, yeah, she drives Tom Hanks to the airport. Yeah, you don't see her in the movie. It's yeah. Like you see them holding hands and maybe one blurry three quarter profile, and that's Catherine Keener's role in that movie. Yeah, and I'm glad she got a payday that day. Yeah, for heaven's sake. But you know, like, so. I, I, but I was like, no one wants this. No one, like, who cares? This is ridiculous. And then I watched the trailer and I, and I saw Kenneth Branagh as a, a thin Hercule Poirot. That's true. That's a very different interpretation. Like striding across the top of a train car in the snow with that mustache, which defies, it is, it defies all senses. Like. It defies sense and your own senses. You can't take it in. Yeah, it's the Metatron, right? It's yeah. The, or his face is the Metatron. I'm trying to figure it out because, you know, you can't hear the voice of God without your head exploding. Right. According to Kevin Smith. Uh, and he manages to have this thing on his face that pulls more focus than the rest of his yeah. head. And suddenly this the movie seemed essential. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was so like, oh, may I, may I curse on your podcast? You I'm like, oh, fuck, it's on. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh as Hercule Poirot, what a ridiculous reinterpretation of both this character, physically, obviously, and an impossible mustache, and you're on top of a train car, and there's whatever that pop song they used to... Oh, I to, um, didn't see the trailer. I try to avoid them. They, uh, they tend to spoil too many things now, so I just... I will, Okay, but... I'll mark it. But yeah. come on, it's Kenneth Murder Branagh on the Orient Express. on a train. Yeah, I mean, like, this is the other thing. It's like, it's a whodunit that has been around for... Well, a hundred years, yeah, it, right? yeah, hundred, almost a hundred years, and and one of and what's interesting though is one of the most famous twist endings that I had completely forgotten. Okay, and I, you know I know that I saw Albert Finney as Poirot, and when I was an adult, probably a young adult, probably, mm-hmm. but you know, but I maybe I turned it off in the middle. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> And you didn't see Clue, which uh, famously... I never, saw Cl- I never saw Clue. Oh, one of yeah. the three endings is... Is that. Is Murder on the Odie. Because, right. of course, it has no to No spoilers. Be. Nah. Again, 30-year-old movie. Right. It's like, oh, well, that was the other thing. It's like, how could you How could you make this movie? Everyone knows the story. Now, obviously, I didn't. But even so, it was like... But that... So then, I was gonna... I was interested in seeing it. You should... Re- oh, this is the thing you were saying. I didn't want to watch this, the trailer because it yeah. gives away too much information. I just don't want to know. I don't want to know relationships. I don't want to know who's in scenes with whom. Because then yeah. I'll start thinking, oh, that person's not dead yet. That person's going to die later. This no, I understand. Happen. But now, now that you've seen the mm-hmm. film, do go back and watch the trailer. Because it it's a... I don't know who cut that thing together, but it's really good. <laughs> it's really good. And I would find myself of an evening just revisiting the trailer. Because it's, the, it's that... They didn't do it in the movie, but it's some, some really... Uh, uh, banging pop song. Okay. Uh, not banging. That makes it sound like a club song. But it's like I. It, it, it's probably the most famous song in the world, and I just don't know who who it is or what it is, right? Because I'm old. But okay. And it is cut like the most incredible. Not action film so much, but there's that moment where Poirot. They say, "Who are you?" And he says, "I'm probably the greatest detective in the world." And they cut to this song, and you're like, "Oh, it's on! I want to see this movie." It was. And and that marrying of contemporary and and old timey was very. I wish they had done it in the movie, honestly. And maybe they, maybe if I went back and and watched it, maybe they did a little no, bit. No, it's, it's fairly like, classical. It's fair, it's fairly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe that's right. But I so now, yeah. The, the thing is, like, even though I 
determined that it was an essential piece of culture. Um, naturally, I didn't manage to see it in theaters sure. because I I don't go to the movies as much as I would like to because of life. Sure, you are working. Right, but then so then I'm on a on a plane, and I'm I'm burning through. Uh, There's a long flight with my son, who's uh, thir- uh, almost thirteen, and I'm burning through. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two because I haven't seen that. Okay. Also, uh, the perfect place to watch that movie. Uh, yeah, it's it was just... it was great, and then and then I was a great day at the movies. I have to say that flight to San Diego, <laughs> and I turn and I see he's watching Murder on the Orient Express, which does not come as a great surprise because he was interested in the in the trailer as well. We had watched it and and um, and I'm like, well, how how is it? And he goes. It's good. I'm like, he's like, have you ever? Do you know the ending? I'm like, no, I don't think I do. He's like, you should watch it, and so I did. And so I, it was this weird experience of having watched, kind of the middle of the movie over his shoulder sure, for a minute, yeah. and then, anyway, I really, so I really, and and what I what I experienced when I saw the movie was, I mean, it is hard not to appreciate the amazing amount of production design. Um, that went into it, and the the directing is good. I mean, I don't know. I, no, he's he's a very good filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird to watch him snap back around from being the guy who pulled an Olivier and you know wrote directed starred in his own version of Henry V, and then Hamlet, and then Hamlet. Well, ten years later, but between right. that, he also played with genres and did you know, like he made Dead, dead Again, al- Dead Again, right? Not Dead Alive. That's a different. Movie. I would watch both of those films in a, in a heartbeat, be pushed together. <laughs> it's a good. That's a good double feature. Yeah. But he was really doing and Peter's Friends, which no one remembers because it's barely been right. That was Emma Thompson, Stephen yeah, Fry, Stephen Fry, Hugh right. Laurie. It's a it's the big chill, but right. it's a really, Cambridge, yeah, a yeah. really good version right. of that, right? And um, and then he kind of solidified into Shakespeare again with with Hamlet and and Much Ado About Nothing as well, right. which I always forget, which is delightful. And in Hamlet, he you know famously tricked uh, Castle Rock into letting him make the full the full version by saying we'll cut it down, right. and then saying, but you know, I have a four hour full text of Hamlet shot in seventy millimeter. You're going to put that out, right? And it's just it's genius. Yeah. No one else has ever done this, right? To my knowledge, and. It speaks to both a ludicrous self-regard. Yes. Because he's, of course, playing Hamlet, 20 years older than he should be. Right. And doing this massive, massive production and managing to sell it. And it's not bad. Yeah. It's it's quite beautiful. I mean, you really, you need to see it larger, but... Yeah, no, I haven't seen it since then. Yeah. It, so um, I would... I, and, you know, ludicrous self-regard is, you know, and, and uh, is, he a, is he knighted? Is he Sir Kenneth Branagh? don't know that he is actually let's just say obe at the very least he's got to have some stuff on him obe kenneth branagh (laughs) i know you're listening og obe yeah i really i really appreciate your work but even you must appreciate the ludicrous self-regard and but you know but also that 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 fueled the ambition and playfulness of doing those different kinds of projects and trying to make frankenstein that was kind of dumb you know, he's he is willing to not succeed, mm-hmm. and for a while, kind of didn't. Like, yeah, there was a rough patch. Yeah, exactly. So, th- it was exciting to see him come back. And what I appreciated immediately upon seeing him on screen is he is perfectly suited to Poirot, who is has ludicrous self regard. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's who he is. And I have to say that as much as I appreciated. Uh, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in the movie and all the all the acting and uh, everyone was incredible. But 
when he wasn't on screen, when I wasn't seeing that mustache, even the scene where he had the mustache covered up by the mustache sling <laughs> in his bed, yes. I was angry. Like, I was like, no, get, get him back on screen. Like, that's why I, I'm here. This is what I want to see. I just want to see this guy. I want to see th- this actor do this thing as much as possible. And this thing, and by this thing, I mean not not only redo Poirot, who had become such a stale idea of a character, um, uh, physically and with extra mustache, sure, but to find in Poirot and stuff that I hadn't—it's been years and years since I had read a Poirot novel, and longer still since I had seen any of the Peter Ustinov movies or whatever—but to find find in Poirot humanity, yeah. It was really striking to me. It's, yeah. As soon as, as soon as we get to this first instance of melancholy, I suppose, whatever yeah. it is that the world disappoints him so. Right. It is so perfect for that character, and I don't think I've ever seen that. I, it's not in the books as far as I remember. Yeah, not as far as I remember either. But it completely... It, it doesn't humanize him exactly. It actually makes him... I, you start thinking about all the other you know, uh, difficult men that have become heroes of television, specifically right. television, ever since House. I right, think, right. Where the idea is that they get the job done, but they're awful to be around. And then to realize that, that to realize how alienating that is to the person who does the thing. Yes. I don't think anyone has ever really tried that. And Brana found it so fast. Yes. He's and impatient. He's pissed off. He's angry. Right. He can't enjoy an egg. Right. That's that's not yet, yet and and interestingly, mm-hmm. like he he is kind to that child who, yes. f- who finds the eggs at the beginning. Even though they are imperfect. But yes. He did his best. Yeah, exact exactly. And and all of a sudden you're clued into this is a <laughs> this is a weird monster, but he's not totally a monster. Yeah. And then it's still all very in that in that early Indiana Jones portion of the movie in, mm-hmm. in by the Wailing Wall. Has its exoticization problems. Sure. Uh, but, but you know, anyway. That's also the sort of... colonial, you know, imperialism problems. Yeah, but, but that's the playfulness of the 60s and 70s. I right. mean, he's somehow referring back to the big roadshow movies as right. well. And making us understand that. Right. In a wiki right. kind of way that makes me less upset. No, I, I look, I, it's not for me to be offended on anyone's behalf. If, if people found that offensive then I'm with you. Like, yeah. I don't, you know, but well, I, I'm but even I was right. sort of like, really? Oh, we're starting at the Wailing Wall with a rabbi, priest, and imam joke. Yeah. It like, is why, kind I'm of like, reach. Mm-hmm. This, it did feel very 70s. You're absolutely right. I hadn't put my finger on that. He's just going for the, he's going for the, 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 oh, I'm going to get his name wrong too. Uh, Freddie Young, no, Freddie Young was the actor. The, no, Freddie Young, the cinematography. Yeah. Uh, like the big, sun-blasted Lawrence of Arabia look. Right. Which I respond to like a tuning fork has been knocked. So yeah. I'm on his side to figure out the intention right away. And, and uh, you know, I've, I think must have been consciously a nod to some of the Roger Moore, James Bonds. I think so, yeah. You know, those bi- that you said sun-blasted. So that, that big, bleary, me. opening, sun-blasted, you know, exotic cityscape. Exotic in quotation marks, of course. Mm-hmm. But I was just like, oh, this is where we're going. But of course... It, then you know we we have the that character building moment with the child. We have the character building moment where he. I, I'm absolutely sure that it is not in the book that he steps in a big pile of camel shit. Probably not. And then has to step with his other foot and say that line, whatever it was. Like it's not. It's not the sh- he doesn't say shit, but it's not the shit that bothers me. It's the imbalance mm-hmm. between the one foot and the other. 
And, and you suddenly are like, whoa, what's, what's going on? And then he very quickly, right after the case is resolved, that initial case, he confesses to that British officer that, like, it's a curse. Like, he just sees imperfection and can't stand it. Yeah. And so, it's a trope. Like, it's not an unusual trope. It's like, I am cursed with this superpower. But it is the worst but it is, superpower. Yeah. To, to know forever that yeah. everything is off. Yeah. And to, and to more or less not be able to correct it. Yeah. Which, of course does pay off in this film because you have this amazing unspoken metaphor running through the entire thing that the murder has been an act of balance. Right. Exactly. And that everyone is... But, uh, but, yeah. No. I really? Want, you don't look, want to... I, if I had listened to this before I saw it on the plane, I would have been upset. You won't even watch the trailer. That's fair. And you're about to, re- you know, reveal the whodunit? Well, we just... We assume. But you're right. It's a fairly fresh film. So we will not talk about the dunning. But we... But yeah, but I think you can speak in general terms that there is a metaphor for balance that opens with the first frame of the film, pretty much. Those yeah. eggs. Why can't the eggs be the same size? There is a moral rectitude in Poirot that is expressed in that same scene where he says, don't let anyone tell you different. There is, there is good and evil. There is right and wrong. Um, and then that will be tested in the movie. And then an, another beautiful echo of the whole conundrum when Johnny Depp sits down enforces himself on Poirot and and Poirot uh, says does two things one he flatly rejects the offer because he knows he's a criminal right which is that moral rectitude again which you realize that okay there is a, there is a core it's not just that he's compelled to solve these mysteries because something's out of place so he has this moral core that presumably arises from whatever happened with his uh, with his presumably dead love uh, interest the classic Sherlock Holmes, you know, I right. shall never love again, which I've stolen now from young Sherlock Holmes. Right, right, exactly. Oh, yeah. God. But but then he also says he's he's like there's this little throw off line. He's like I, Johnny Depp's character says I you know I hate dying alone, and he says being alone is my my dream or whatever. Poirot says, mm-hmm. you know, and and being alone is his dream. You also realize not because he has delusional self regard and thinks he's the best company. It's just. It's the only time he might find a certain amount of peace yeah. with what's going on in his in his mind, and the the constant. I don't remember how much this was a part of either the earlier film or the book, but the constant, the initial setup is like I need a break, like I need to be on vacation. Was such a beautiful humanizing thing. Like again, it's a trope. It's like I want out, but they've dropped me back in. Sure, yeah. Whatever it is, but you feel like oh yeah, this the, when this dude opens his eyes. The, the world is a puzzle of imperfection. And that they that Branagh was able to clue into this as a tragic character flaw or, you know, a, a tragic aspect of his character that then will be tested again by his decision about what to do once he knows the solution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how, how does he write, how does he balance his uh, mania for balance? Because this, the, the result, the solution, the murder is an act of balance versus his moral rectitude, right? Because there is a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do. But what is the right, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I was just like, what way to go? Like, this this became something to the point where he gets off the train and dude goes, there's been a murder on the Nile. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> get this movie in front of me as soon as possible. I want a sequel. Yeah, I would not have seen it. I mean, I kind of winced when that line drops because... I loved it so much. It was so corny. Yeah. But you say But that's thing. it. He's leaning into it. He yeah. knows exactly how far to push it. 
which I think somehow he has learned as a filmmaker through the giant monsters of, you know, he made a Jack Ryan movie. Nobody remembers that. He directed that thing. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, Shadow Recruit, I think. And he made Thor, obviously, the first right. one. Yeah, but I just presume and those are, Thor is a competently made film. Mm-hmm. And he's the right choice for it, too, I think, the, to meld the Shakespearean ridiculousness of all the costumes and the, and the fish-out-of-water nature on Earth. He's actually, he's probably the best person for that first film. Yes. He, he has just enough ego to refuse to kowtow to the Marvel machine. Yes. And will do his own weird thing. Right. And then the Jack Ryan movie, which is utterly forgettable, except for one tremendous fight scene in a bathroom. Uh, which right. had just happened in a Bond movie, so nobody paid attention to it. But it's just really well done. Christopher Pine, right? Yeah, wasn't yeah. he the new, the new, new, the new, new, the new, new Jack, Jack Ryan, Ryan? And now it's uh, Krasinski. Yeah. Oh, really? The, the new Amazon oh Prime. I mean, Jack talk Ryan. about things that no one's asking for. Yeah. Like, it, it's it's astonishing to me that that they are trying to. I mean, look, a studio owns the rights to these things. Yeah. It's a brand. It's sure. a brand. It's a viable brand. They're not going to try to... They're not going to ignore a brand that they have, even if its value is a tenth of what it was in the 90s. Yeah. The first person to play Jack Ryan was Alec Baldwin, yeah. who, at a time when he was still a likable actor. Yeah. <laughs> like, and a know. magnificently spiky choice, too. I mean, that little yeah. window of time with, with uh, Red October and Miami Blues, which is just... I was just thinking about Miami Blues. I couldn't remember the name of it because it's a terrible name, but he's incredible in it. Stone classic. And he's, yeah, yeah he's fantastic. I'm, and Fred I'm, Ward, right? Fred Isn't Ward, Jennifer the, Jason Lee. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, uh, Nora Dunn, weirdly cast as a Who cop. Who was the director of that movie? That was George uh, Armitage, who made Gross Point Blank. Oh, right. And very little else. And um, it's weird because right. he's so goddamn good at it. Right. But, I mean, when you think about... The actors who have portrayed Jack Ryan. It's uh, Baldwin, Harrison Ford. Yeah. Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. That's the one I was missing. Yeah. Then Chris Pine. Then John Krasinski. Yeah. What do these guys all have in common? Other than being white dudes. Tall white dudes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not, I mean that... The, the, the Jack Ryan's whole description might be p- tall white dude. He's such a nothing character. Yeah. Like, that's another one. It's like, do we need to reinter... What we need is a Kenneth Branagh... Well, we got it. Yeah, he did it. Yeah, it's happened. But, like, what if, what if Kenneth Branagh put, like, the most ridiculous beard on Jack Ryan? <laughs> that's what we need now. We need more... As someone who sports ridiculous facial hair, this is what we need now. Jack Ryan, master of disguise. Yeah, exactly. But so, he's also taking an old property with... Christie, right? I mean, Poirot is a character who's right. been embodied over and over and over again. People were immediately starting to argue, well, you know, Suchet is so perfect, I can't imagine another Poirot. Right. Well, that was the problem. That's why I never chose to watch any of those Suchet Poirots, mm-hmm. because he was so perfect. Like, when I saw, I was like, yep, that's that That's that unlikable character. Like, yeah. un- unpleasant. Not not fun. I was always a Miss Marple person. <laughs> but, uh, you know. Well, they're going to redo that with Emily Blunt any day now, you'll see. Sure. Everything right? is viable. Everything is vi- Well, and we know that now because I opened this whole conversation by saying, who the fuck in the world wants Murder on the Orient Express? And I came, I, I reached the end of the movie, having watched it in all its, in, in all its subtle beauty and all of its dumb pandering, mm-hmm. being so excited. I said, Murder on the Nile, hooray, I want yeah. that sequel right away. Too bad it will never happen because I'm sure this was a flop. I, I didn't know anything. Yeah. And then when I landed and I was talking to people in San Diego about it, I was meeting some friends. I'm like, oh, no, no, they're making that sequel. Like, that movie made a lot of money. Yeah. They, it, was, it wasn't. Almost a, immediately. Yeah. And, and I'm like, really? That's amazing. Why? And it's like, 
everyone over 45 went to the movies. Like that was, <laughs> yeah. there, there, are, there are options that weekend were um, Thor Ragnarok and Daddy's Home 2, which yeah. uh, I happened to look this up. It's not like I know these right. things. Right. No, I'm, I'm not, that's not my curse. That's mine. Sort of. Yeah, that's yours, I right? That's tell you, yeah. 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 And so can, as an old, you know, look, I'm, I'm going to turn 47 this year. Yeah. So I'm, I'm getting there, right? But as a grown up with children, I barely am able to get out of the house to see a movie. Sure. And when I am, I, I I do go. I'm very happy because most movies are made for children of a kind. Do you know? Like, oh, yeah. I could not be happier that there is a Marvel Cinematic Universe. I saw Thor Ragnarok on the way home. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, there's a whole conversation about what did Kenneth Branagh do that allowed uh, Taika Watiti, is that how you pronounce his yeah. last name? To make Thor Ragnarok. Like, it's interesting. Like, that finding realizing that that character is essentially humorous as opposed to serious yeah. was sort of the slow dis, the slow discovery of all the marvel cinematic universes where they began to realize oh this guy's a big dummy like, yeah we should just make him fun rather than try to make him serious yeah and brenna definitely found that yeah um the stentorian delivery of, of foolishness right and when he smashes his mug on the diner floor like that was funny yeah. like and chris hemsworth is a really good comic actor like anyway if any well there no, are, feel free well i, I don't want to i don't want to say anything that will prevent me from being cast in the marvel cinematic <clears throat> universe movie I, I, I love it i love them kind of surprised it hasn't happened yet shield needs agents by the ton uh patton's playing all of them yeah exactly and he will and he is to my dismay but i must acknowledge he is the perfect modok which is the villain <laughs> The very obscure Marvel villain that I wanted to play. I still think you could do it. No, no. Because I'd probably have to shave for the role and I wouldn't want to do it. That's all dots now. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Well, yeah, as we know from Justice League, it's very easy to remove facial hair from <laughs> the handsomest man in the world. It's the most disturbing image once you see it. Can't unsee it. Um, it is. Like, and that yeah. opened the week That opened the week before. So it was the battle of murder on the Orient Express with fake mustaches. and Right. Oh, no, it's the whole mustache podcast. I think, fantastic. We, I think we're discovering an unchecked... So yes, there will be a sequel to Murder on the Orient Express, and this forty, almost forty-seven-year-old is very excited about yeah. it. And I was just checking the, checking Wikipedia on the way over here, and Branna is like, "Yeah, I'm going to create a a Poirotiverse. <laughs> like, I'm going to if I can do this, I'm just going to I'm going to create a whole MCU based around Agatha Christie." Right. For people in their in their fifties, I mean, why? Like, because we don't have movies to go see. Like, a lot of grownups just don't have movies to go see, that are for more or less for grownups. They're it's a dumb adventure, of course. But it's like, oh my god, right? Yeah, that's an, I'm so happy for him. Yeah, the the pitch to me is, you know, when I when if I, I were really speaking French correctly, it would be a Poirot diverse. I have a cold. I can't get it out. Poirot diverse. The the pitch for me is that Herculeverse, Herculeverse, Herculeverse. Yeah, that's sorry. it. Yeah. Um, who's yeah, the, I, who's the what's the studio that made this movie? Fox, 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 which somehow acquired it from Paramount. So Disney. Yeah. Now, <laughs> Jesus, you're right. Yeah. So this could also feature the Avengers. But oh, in, you're right. But in period costume crossover, it wouldn't even have to be a crossover. But they've got you know, uh, who was the person that occurred to me? Well, just the fact that. Um, we now are in a place where there is essentially one studio that rules them all. Right. And their rapaciousness has 
paid off in all of these properties. Which... I just want to let everyone know at Disney that Norm Wildner said rapaciousness, not I made. I've used this about Disney a lot. I'm happy with whatever. They're you the Langoliers. They chew up everything. I think you're doing great, Disney. <laughs> I'm doing. I I was so happy to play a voice role in Ducktales this year and. <laughs> Cannot wait for any small part in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, so Hodgman for Modoc. I keep do going. stand with this. You keep going, Disney. Don't listen to this <coughs> angry Canadian. <laughs> oh, by definition. Well, okay, but say your words. I just now that I've distanced myself. Okay, I just think it is remarkable that there is another vehicle that they own that is simply by the accident of the time in which it takes place. It's unavailable to the other things. By vehicle, you mean that train? They own that train? Well, <laughs> well, yeah. They own the train, they own the boat that's going to... They're building the boat, I'm sure, that's going down the now. Right. But the, the idea that this thing is set forever in the 20s and 30s and that, that you can't... You can't knowingly, winkingly throw something in like that. That you But you can... You can't... You mean the, the Marvel universe? Well, any of the other ones, right? right? right. Like right. the projects are... They're going to... Like everything right. will someday be stitched together the way Patton Oswalt warned us in Parks and Recreation. Right, right. But with this, you have the opportunity to have an endless parade of actors who it's great for actors just want to show up and, and play. Yeah, it's great for actors, yeah. and that's and things that are great for actors are also great for moviegoers because that's the fun. Like, yeah. you know, ju- you know, I'll, I'll contrast it with the most astonishing movie that I've seen this year and last, which is the Florida Project, which I just watched two nights ago. Oh yeah. So I was saying this to my friend um, Nicholas McCarthy, who is a horror movie director. I know him from high school. He's in what town is, right now. What are his films? I didn't, I'm not aware. He he made a movie with um, an actor named Katie Lotz, who is now in... Um, oh, The Machine. Is that his? No, no, it's called The Pact. Oh. Did you see that one? I did. She, I completely blanked that she was in that. It's right there on the wall. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Uh, under P. Yes, well, right above Paddington, which is sort of adorable. Yeah. Do you, do you know that... This is my I had, horror. Okay. I had a waking dream, some weird dream, where I, in the dream, like I was coming out of sleep, and mm-hmm. I had this dream that I was watching a TV advertisement for Paddington 2, and in the dream, but it was one of those dreams where you, 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 think, it's re- you think it's happening. Right. And in fact, the memory of this fake commercial stayed with me for a while and I was just like I believed that I had seen it. And in the in this fantasy, the the ad I was watching for Paddington 2, the 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 subtitle for Paddington 2 was Kill Force. <laughs> it was Paddington 2 Kill Force. I'm like, where are they going with the Paddington <laughs> franchise? And it took several days before I realized, oh that's not true. I dreamed that at some point. <clears throat> so yeah, Nicholas McCarthy, uh, uh, I call him Nick because I've known him since high school. All I ever wanted, he's a person who introduced me to The Evil Dead, to Bruce Campbell, okay. to to Cronenberg. Uh, um, and, uh, he, you know, I think he's going on a tour next weekend of Cronenberg locations and in and around <laughs> Toronto. A friend of his uh. is taking him around. But so he's in town making a, a movie uh, now with Taylor Schilling. Um, and we had dinner. And I was saying to him, like, as someone who has had the bizarre good fortune to be able to be in some projects, to step behind the scenes of some TV shows and some movies, and knowing a little bit of how things are made. Part of my enjoyment, Mm -hmm. particularly of Murder of the Orient Express, is seeing the shots and seeing the choices that they made, and particularly with the actors, like watching them, quote-unquote, acting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because... That's like, the, you know, watching Kenneth Branagh do Poirot is 
a, a little bit of a masterclass in acting. Um, but he's definitely acting, right? Yeah. It's like like you're re- you're showing off all your tricks. Yeah, it's um, uh, Meryl Streep calls it indicating, and she oh. says it's the thing she doesn't want to do, right? But that sometimes it's the only way to communicate something. Um, yeah. Her example was. Uh, when you're drunk, you try to play sober. You pretend you know, the, the best way to play drunk is to pretend you're sober, and that's the intention comes through. Right, that you're because no drunk wants to admit that they're drunk. Right, right. Uh, or when you're in grief, when you're grieving, try to laugh once or twice. Like you're forcing yourself to laugh. If it looks fake, it communicates the struggle. Sure. The I mean, there is an ar- there's been an artifice to acting forever. Like naturalism in acting is only something that could have happened once we had film, mm-hmm. because only then could you capture the subtleties of of a face close up and you know take let Ingrid Bergman do a five minute monologue without stopping yeah. like and the audience could be right like inches from her face because before that acting was all about projection you know like you go see the mousetrap in London yeah. and that's just that's just yelling like <laughs> for a long time acting was just yelling so but uh, you know it's, so there but there is a pleasure in artifice right and particularly if you've had an opportunity to see how the sausage gets made you enjoy, like you can enjoy looking at the costumes and then you can also think about boy that costume designer is amazing yeah. uh i wonder how they did that or i have an idea of how they did that what a great idea to have them all sit at the at the at the mouth of that tunnel was that in the book like you playing yeah. with the artifice is part of the fun the florida project that uh, I, I don't know how they i don't know how he did it i mean the the acting quote unquote is so I mean, among the grown-ups and the kids, across the board, it feels like a documentary. And it feels so unguarded. It feels so unartificial. There there are no indicators. And it's a a mystery to me. And at, at one point, I thought, oh, well... It, to me, it was like it was a whodunit. Like, right. how did this happen? Yeah. Um, and I couldn't. I drew on all of my understanding, limited as it is, of of filmmaking and watching it get done. And I was like, what did he do? How did he get these performances out of these kids? How did he get the kids to be the most incredible improvisational actors of all time? I mean, kids are. Yeah, I just assume he must have burned. Sure. Well, not footage because we don't do that anymore. But those those SD cards are full. Of scenes that he didn't use. He shot it on film. Wait. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because only the last moment is... Yeah. Yeah. And that's what... That, like, I forgot that. Because I... The, the only, the, my solution was, oh, he shot it on his phone. Like, he shot it on with a digital camera, either on his phone, because he made that movie that was all on... Tangerine. Right. Yeah. Or he shot it with a digital camera that was... That was, A, obviously will allow him to burn... Just keep rolling, keep rolling, keep rolling until he has what you want. Right, and and that is to say, just not not get different takes, but just let let everybody be themselves yeah. until you find the core of the scene, and also something that had to be completely unobtrusive, so that the kids wouldn't get self conscious. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. And, you can and then I went to, I went to confirm my incredible solution and discovered that he shot it on goddamn film, <laughs> and all of a sudden my mind is completely blown because there's the scene. Where they're walking through the con- the abandoned condominium, and it's like, was this Steadicam? Yeah, you, and you have to light that. You you can't. <clears throat> well, that that is a question mark. Mm-hmm. That's a possibility that that may be a no. You just get away with low light film, or 
because you know um, the Nick TV show, which I was the star of. Of course, you're the second uh, star of the Nick that we've had on. Eric Johnson has been here. Yeah, yeah, I had a feeling. My, <laughs> he's my fave. I love him so much. Uh, Tell him love, I say hi. I will. You'll love his episode. It's uh, Children of Men. Oh yeah, right. Another so another like that's one where you're definitely like, oh my god, how did he do that? Yeah. Like that, what blood on the lens? What a decision. Like, yeah. And that was a mistake, right? Yeah. And then yeah. he just said, right, yeah. Keep them all. Yeah. He's amazing that way. But I'm yeah. sorry, I keep, I keep derailing. Oh, no, but so, you know, maybe Eric told you about this, but in, in the Nick, there was, there was, it was all practical in the moment lighting. There was no lighting. Yeah. And it, you can see it. I mean, it's a dark, a suitably dark look, right? Um, but yeah, Soderbergh, uh, season one, Soderbergh operated a camera. And his friend operated a camera. His, I'm saying his friend. Yeah. They're all his friends, right? It's his team. Yeah, it's and there and it was the fastest I've ever worked on a set because a he knew every shot that he wanted to get. He had basically pre-edited everything. The only thing I added was I no, I don't even think I yeah I took off my gloves, my weird uh, uh, psychiatric doctor gloves. Yeah, and he's and and he said my only contribution to the Nick was. As far as I'm concerned, when Steven Soderbergh said, do that again, I want to get that. I'm like, oh, I gave you something that you weren't looking for. In the second season, then I come back in the second season, my monster doctor comes back in the second season to have dinner in the same house with the same family. Uh, so I, had this, I had a whole monologue and I'm like, I'm going to Ingrid Bergman this up. A long, like minutes long talk of just me yeah. holding court at this table. And he shoots and he shoots it over here. And he shoots it over here, and he shoots it over here, and he's like, "Great! Now you go upstairs, and you come down, and we, we're going to put put sweat all over your face because now you now you've you're having a, a digestive problem." Not to give away anything, no. <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, I almost I'm about to say, are you sure you want to put sweat on my face? Because um, it's going to be hard to get that off when you come around and shoot my face for this long monologue that I've rehearsed for." <laughs> and I realized, "Oh no, he's not going to shoot my face. I'm not going to." My Ingrid Bourbon moment is the back of my neck. Like, he's, he just, and it was this astonishing moment that, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm an untrained and dilettante-ish actor. I, they ask me to be in a thing, I'll show up and do my best. But I, I love it as a, as a craft. It's something I would love to do more and, and learn to do better. And I think I've gotten better. But it was this moment, and I think I was pretty good in that scene, but realizing that like oh steven soderbergh doesn't have to shoot my face because steven soderbergh feels that there is nothing i can show him as an actor in that moment that he will find necessary there is no surprise that i can offer him i took off my gloves one time that's what i got that was that was my addition but like and and appreciating like steven soderbergh's probably right like there's probably nothing i can do like, I will probably drop a lot of indicators and do a lot of quote-unquote acting with my face. It probably will be, look phony. I won't, it won't be natural like those kids in the Florida Project. And that was a humiliating but gr- growth experience for right. me. And, you know, but the, the, point, the point of the, not only does he pre-edit everything, but he didn't have um, studio lighting. He had, no, he had no lighting to set up in any of the shots, so he could just move around all the time. And so that was a couple of years ago, right? He had some camera that allowed for you to shoot in low light and look, make it look beautiful. Right. But it was digital, right? I mean, that's... 
Oh yeah, yeah. I think about the floor right, project. But, like, but, lighting film but, uh, is so specific. Kubrick shot um, Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon. Uh, and that was all candlelight he, with lenses he designed himself. Right, but the, Kubrick was insane. The 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 technology exists in the world, and and what we have to remember is, there is probably no more beautiful natural light than Florida in the afternoon. Like you're working with the most incredible light all the time. Mm-hmm. Having driven through Florida a year ago on tour with the Boston Pops, <laughs> um, and not and have, having a whole lot of cliches in my head about Florida, and having all of them challenged. It's an amazing place, and boy, oh boy, even in, you know, that that's part of the part of the movie is that even in the scuzziest outlier of Orlando, the whole world is touched by this beautiful swampy wilderness and this beautiful light. So I I bet you, and there's big fluorescent lights in that motel. Like yeah. I bet you, probably that might be the secret. You probably didn't need to, but it's crazy. So that that whole you know that's one where the solution still eludes me which is a, a great mystery to solve mm-hmm. and so can't uh, wait to reboot it yeah i'm doing my own the florida the project florida project cinematic universe yeah that's right just my gonna... my reinterpretation of willem dafoe's because i'm gonna be I'm, I'm gonna be walking on top of the motel i'm gonna have a huge mustache <laughs> and i was like who am i i'm probably the greatest hotel manager in the world <laughs> it's gonna be great everybody you can I'm, feel it, right? I'm in. I'm in yeah, for that. Yeah. So the last, well, the last question on the oh, podcast, yeah. very quickly, is no. uh, simply: Is there anything? I mean, it's such a fresh film that I and so distinct that I can't imagine that there is. But is there anything from Murder on the Orient Express that you want to steal or borrow or or use at some point? I want that mustache for sure. <laughs> like, how, when did it come out? November 2017. So it was after Halloween. Yes, just. Yeah, uh, and this coming around. Halloween will be too late. People will. Or maybe it'll be perfect. Maybe I can lose 30 pounds and grow an incredible mustache and I could be Poirot for Halloween. I think he had it applied. I think he, there is a better solution, which is that you don't have to do that to yourself. I'm not sure the human face can make <laughs> three mustaches appear on your cheek or whatever it is. But anyway, so is that what would I steal or take is or there anything, borrow? Yeah, something that you'd want to incorporate into your own creative DNA. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I would like to watch, I would like to watch a supercut of that movie with just Branna's face in it and just watch what he does. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll allow, uh, Judy Dench to, mm-hmm. yeah, that's all. I, that's all. I, I mean, I don't want to take away from, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's performance. Uh, she is, is incredible. And, and particularly by the last scene that I would look at that again, just again, just try to learn how to act. Do you know what I mean? See what they're doing. Like, I feel like there's so much going on in his face that I would love to watch. And I would watch Michelle Pfeiffer because her revelation at the end makes it clear that she, that all of the the really highly indicating acting that she was doing at the beginning of the movie yeah. was on purpose. Like, she was the drunk who didn't know how to act. Or she was the, she was the person who didn't know the Meryl Streep trick to acting drunk. And it was... At the beginning, it was jarring. It's like, come on, Michelle Pfeiffer, you're better than this. You can do it better better than this. And then you realize why she's doing it. That's pretty amazing, right? So, yeah, I would just, but I mean, just as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm diluting my vision here <laughs> for my own interest in, in doing better as an actor. I would take that super cut of just mustache shots. Mustache. If the, if the stash isn't in it, I don't want to see it. Someone out there, please make it for me and send it to me. Oh, God, that's going to happen. That's that sure. Will happen. I hope so. And 
uh, I really, really need to be in Murder on the Nile. So, Disney. If you can't have Modoc. Look, uh, no, I can do both. Ship. You could be a porter. You could be a steamship guy. Uh, 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 Daisy Ridley can be in Star Wars and Poirot, but I can't just because she's talented and and doesn't look like a weirdo. And that's how it starts. Yeah, no, I can be Modoc and I can be Poirot's assistant was Hastings in the book. He was the narrator, I feel like, mm. a lot of the time. But he didn't appear in all of the books. He was sort of the sidekick assistant. But I'll be I'll be Hastings or I'll be look, I got the weird facial hair already. Put me put me in, coach. Don't listen to Norm Wilmer. You're doing great, Disney. See, I just now I want to see Poirot judge your facial hair in one scene. You you enter Oh, it, it would be it, his his brain would break because it is profoundly imperfect and asymmetrical in every way. Yeah. My facial hair is um is a terrible a terrible puzzle that will never be solved. <laughs> So there, that's the hook. That's the hook, yeah. My thanks to John Hodgman, whose book Vacation Land is available in a new paperback edition as of today. Check out your local independent bookstore or order it from the internet retailer of your choice. You should also be listening to the Judge John Hodgman podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. It's weird and delightful, and your life will be better for it. You can find John on Twitter at Hodgman, and you can find Murder on the Orient Express on Blu-ray and DVD from 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. And we checked. The song in the trailer is Imagine Dragon's Believer. And it really is a banger. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.